Welcome to Coming Along Nicely. We're two brothers, Rich and Tim, who recently went back to school. Every week, we're discussing one thing we're learning in our classes, and we want to invite you to come along with us. You know what? I'm not a pastor, so I'm not going to weigh in on that one. Brief psychotic episodes are actually on the rise. He was just a guy, a writer writing about things that he believed in. Amish man was leading his horse and buggy towards the White House. Oh, this is an intellectual guy. He knows what he's talking about. He's been educated. Oh, when you write songs, do you... So do you write music first, lyric first, half and half? What's like your... your like what's your secret? Um, I write... Excuse me. I write lyrics first, but like the lyric... It it comes with the melody. Like I'm not just writing words on a page. I'm like writing the song in my head. Uh and I get it probably, I mean, it's different every time, but probably like 80% done in my head. Um and then when I sit down like with a guitar or something, the process of so like I already hear it in my head at that point. But I, the way I do it, okay, sorry, I'm giving sort of a rambling answer, is I will specifically not pick up a guitar or a piano until I've written most of the song in my head. So I'm literally doing it, you know, kind of 100% just in my mind, jotting down notes. But then when I pick up the guitar... Sometimes the chords I think I am supposed to play aren't the actual ones. Um, and so, I don't know. I feel like I'm giving the, the dumbest possible way. It makes sense to me. I write it in my head, the no, lyrics. No. So why, why do you find that the guitar, the piano, it's not helpful until you get it to that 80% point? Uh, it's not that it's not helpful. What it is, and this is what I was was trying to say, is that I write the song, I think, and then when I pick up the guitar, it's like in you know the working out analogy of like confusing your muscles. It's like I think I've finished the song, but then I pick up the guitar and realize I don't know how to play it. And so that's like a second wave of creativity. So at that point, I got mm. pretty much all of the words done, but by throwing in the element of the music, uh, it gives me kind of like another jumping off point to kind of figure things out. Like I, uh, the first song I, I wrote and it's one of the ones I put out earlier this year, I thought in my head, I thought I knew what chord progression it was, which was like one, four, five. And then when I started playing it, I realized it was actually, what is it? One, four, two, and just that little revelation, I don't know, it was just kind of like a light bulb moment and it kind of keeps me inspired and keeps me feeling like an amateur, which is good creatively. Yeah, because if you had, you're saying if you had too much of it figured out, you'd like lose momentum with it. But because you're like, you're giving yourself a creative second wind strategically. Right, yeah. How long do you think it takes you to write a song? Or is that like, a, it really depends on how inspired you're feeling or... Uh, it's not really inspired. It's more, it depends on how much else I have going on. 
because a lot of times I'll sit down to work on one, but a lot of my breakthroughs happen honestly when I'm walking and when I'm running. And so, Hmm. you know, I kind of need to be able to carve out time a to actually literally sit down and work on it, but B to be able to go on a run and just have something kind of like hit me. So what I'm doing in winter break, like I was talking about is really more so about just not having, uh, other school and stuff to do. That's, that's more on the songwriting side on the music side. Yeah. You kind of just have to sit down and do it. Like it feels like work. It isn't that inspiring actually recording the music part of it. So for the, for the songwriting part, I feel like with winter coming up in Ohio and I think you're coming home during that time, how do you, think you'll be able to make that time to walk and find inspiration that way when it's super cold? Or are you like, Hey, maybe it brings that another side of inspiration. Well, that's a good point. Um, when I was living up there, I would run in the winter. I had my like gear and stuff to run in the cold, but I'm definitely not going to do that when I'm up there. But I my goal is I've got the projects started for all of the songs and I've got most of them like, I don't know, 60 or 80 percent, 70 percent written. The writing part is the part that I have like those breakthroughs if I'm like walking or running or whatever, like I was saying, Uh, the music part is what I'm planning on working on up in Ohio. And that part is kind of more like, I just have to wake up and sit at the computer and do it. So I don't know if that part will be affected as long as I'm coming up there with kind of the songs written. I think I'll be fine. Gotcha. That makes sense. Then you're getting all the good weather to help you while you're down there for as long as you can. Yeah. (sighs) And then you start, you're done next week. I have some friends who have told me that they're done next week. That's, that's the, ouchy thing about being uh i think in terms is this is week six of eight for me so i have this week and then two more weeks i'm not sure what our breaks look like so i might be pleasantly surprised or i might be like oh shoot i have like no break is we'll see is all of malone like that or is it just the master's program that's in that term schedule that's a good question i don't remember when I was doing my undergrad, it being in terms, I think it's still undergrad, like is uh, in semesters. But who knows? I don't I don't know. I could try to find out, but <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's really what the people are here for. You know, they're here for what we learned in school Hard this week, which educational knowledge. Yes. Yep. Which I'll tell you, it's another this class is not good for the show. Really? The addictions class, the uh the developmental class, those were those were good. This one it's just I well, I don't know. Maybe people want to listen to me talk about schizophrenia for 30 minutes, but I don't think that that's <laughs> that's good content. Because that's what I've been learning about this week is just schizophrenia. It's heavy. But yeah. I also think I started last time. I'm not sure. So let me ask you, Tim, what have you been learning this week in school? Uh So we just today wrapped up the C.S. Lewis class. 
and I think that's what I'm I'm going to talk about. There was another thing that I was thinking about bringing. I actually I'll just do it. I'll give you the real quick version of it. Um, in sure. history and si- history of science and the human, we were talking about Isaac Newton, and we read this paper from. Uh, gosh, I guess I don't know exactly, probably like 10 years ago or so. And it was kind of along a theme that we've talked about a lot, which is why I initially thought I would bring it up. And then the more I thought about it, it's like, no, this I think we've covered enough. But in regards to Isaac Newton, I guess there was in like somewhere around the seventies, it was probably over a couple decades. There was this thing called, I want to make sure I'm getting right. Psychohistory. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Mm. this, but it Mm -mm. was essentially, and I'm saying was because it kind of came in like a fad. And then people realized like, maybe this isn't good, but it was essentially trying to like psychoanalyze historical figures And so there was during that time this, uh, I I mean, I guess it was essentially settled in people's minds that they were saying that Isaac Newton would have had Asperger's. And Hmm. at the same time, that was also attributed to this paper listed off like eight or ten notable figures. I think Mozart was one of them uh, and Mm -hmm. others names you would recognize And so that was kind of a movement going on. What this paper was, was kind of the historian being like, wait a second, hold on. Like, let's pump the brakes because you. Okay, so essentially his argument was a lot of the stuff we've talked about of like, you guys are just really loosely connecting dots of like Isaac Newton had some weird tendencies. And so they were as they as they were learning about Asperger's, they were attributing it to all these figures. But in the specific case of Isaac Newton, this writer is like, well, actually, if you dig into the symptoms of Asperger's, like he actually doesn't display them. He actually displays symptoms of these other things. And so the writer is kind of like tearing apart that idea uh, specifically I didn't get to read the other side, so maybe maybe there are better arguments for it that I'm just not aware of. But also pulling back, that whole movement of psycho history kind of like fell out of vogue because people realized like we're talking about real people and we don't have them there. We don't have them here to actually we don't have access to their childhood. We don't have access to the things that you would need for someone like you to be able to diagnose them with something. We're kind of just like uh, looking at this person's life through this lens, which is it's almost like writing like psychoanalytic fan fiction. Right. And that was the thing I said is like this reminds me more less of history and more of English literature where like English literature, you can pick up a book and you can say, what if this character was that? Or what if this, yeah. you know, in Star Wars, what if, you know, the rebels represent, you know, 
Vietnam or something like you can do that in a story. But when it's real people, that's just kind of like, yuck. Like you don't want to attribute stuff falsely to actual people. It's kind of weird too, with how much, how much information is just being recorded about us. Not like how much information is being recorded about us, but just like, I don't know We're if we're, if we're on social media that we've got, there's, for us, there's like all of this audio recording we're doing. It's weird thinking about like how stuff like this will happen in the future and is happening now. Like how people can look back on what we're like, I guess for Thomas Newton, there's some records about him. Like obviously there's enough for that one guy to be able to say like, hey, I don't think he has this diagnosis. He more has these symptoms. But as time goes on, it seems like we just exponentially have more and more of us out there for people to look at. So it's weird to think about where that will be in like 15, 20 years when people are looking back at what people have said and done. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that makes me think that that won't be super effective is the fact that even like what we're doing, recording our voices and all of our text messages and all of our, you know, emails and everything we do online. Yes, that will exist, but also who knows, like who really shares the deepest parts of themselves ever. You know what I mean? True. Yeah. So that actually brings me into C.S. Lewis. We were reading more of like an uh, not one of his books, but a book about him, a biographical book. And the way that we know a lot of what we know about C.S. Lewis is uh, people have people over the years held on to their correspondence with him. So he actually would like lots of people would write him letters asking about his works and about religion a lot of times. And he answered, I think pretty much every letter he got, like he had this thing about if somebody took time. Yeah. And so it's crazy. So a lot of people like treasured those things and held on to them. But to what you're saying, CS Lewis probably in his letters to people, like after his wife died, for instance, he was probably more real with them than a lot of people are on the internet. And so even though there's more quantity on the internet for people to look back on, you know, in, in however many decades, I don't know if it's as much quality, but I, I mean, who knows? No, that's, that's interesting. Cause I know like thinking about it that way, when you're writing a handwritten letter, like I'm sure they had to worry a little bit about like journalism and what people are going to find out, but that seems more intimate. No one's going to take a letter and especially back then, like blab it everywhere. Maybe they'll tell people closest to them, but that's not going to get across the world. Whereas nowadays, if you share something like intimate and safe with someone, you you have to have a level of trust with them to know that it's not going to get on the Internet. Yeah, that's true, too. Which I think is most hard with like, you know, adolescence. Because adolescents, sometimes they just don't even they they just don't think about it. Like to them, the Internet's second nature. And if their friend tells them something like, of course, they're going to, you know, talk with somebody else about about the Internet. And then the next thing you know, it's all across school. 
I don't think they mean to do this. I don't think it's a harmful thing all the time. It's just one of those things where, you know, worlds collide. And sometimes the internet does exactly what you know it will do, but still surprises you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a weird thing about like TikTok, for example, when. Oh, yeah. Because the the whole idea of TikTok is that. Uh, it's getting shown to strangers. You know, Facebook and Instagram always had this sort of uh, covering of like, oh, this is about your friends and family. And it's really not. It's about, you know, they they show your stuff to strangers too. And they are really just about like selling ad space. But they at least had kind of that mm-hmm. facade. Whereas TikTok is just like mask off. You are going, you're making this and we're going to push it out to strangers. And I've, (laughs) I've never gone viral or anything, but it is weird when you post something that you don't think anybody's going to see. And then you get back on and you have like however many comments and you have like however many thousands of people liked it. And it's like, oh, I, I didn't really think twice about that before I posted it. Yeah. Huh. I don't know. I don't I don't know if that's particularly like a new observation or anything, but I also No, it's just interesting to think about. It made me think with C.S. Lewis, it made me wonder what he would do if he was alive during social media. Because like I said, he felt this moral obligation to reply to everybody. And mm. you know, if he was around today, the amount of correspondence he would get like that's that's literally impossible and if you did feel that sort of an obligation that would just break your brain i feel like oh yeah you'd be always responding so how you determine who to respond to and who not to huh i could see him do like a like a um, hello, i'm going to be going live on wednesday to answer your questions I'll have a couple of moderators in the chat. Like I could see something like that. And he does it consistently. Kind of like his wartime radio during World War II. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen like artists do. They'll put in their Instagram bio or whatever. Like no DMs. Like they just straight up tell people. Mm-hmm. I don't check DMs, which is one way of doing it. I don't think that C.S. Lewis would do that, though. I think it would be something more like you said. Well, okay, but here's going back to your first point. So when he received these letters in a non-social media era, he would be more open in them because it's letters. Would he be as open in his responses in a social media era, or would we not see that side of him? Yeah, so I think that's that's more of the point or a similar point I was going to try to get to is he was very humble. And whenever people talked about, uh, so in this book we were reading, there was one guy in particular who had a relationship with him and was like, I'm going to make the anthology of CS Lewis works. Like I'm going to pull together all your quotes and like put it out in this singular package. And CS Lewis was like, no, do not do that. Like nobody needs to read my, that nobody needs an anthology of me 
or there was another instance where somebody asked him, a friend asked him to sign, you know, his copy of whatever book and he did it, but he was really reluctant. He was really humble. And he, so my point is he would be like horrified at the idea of, uh, that you're taking a class called CS. Yeah. Lewis. And like, there's a whole center in Chicago that's all based around his old, like, desk where he wrote at and a bunch of letters that people save that he wrote them and so in his like in dealing with him i do think it's like perfectly ethical and whatever i don't think it's like a breach of anything the way that we collect the correspondence but back to what you were saying about in the future when there's so much more out there about us it does make me wonder like yeah does all that stuff just get released when you die like how does that work yeah, because for like people who are alive during that time, it's collecting correspondence. But what is it for us? Just looking at their feed? Feed, I don't think is a ethical issue because you posted that stuff publicly. But if true a private true. company owns your DMs or whatever, I don't know. Like I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be scared at anybody seeing my DMs, but at the same time, it's like, that's not like, I wasn't doing it with the idea that the whole world would see it in the same way that CS Lewis wasn't writing a letter with the thought that the whole world would see it. Yeah. Huh. That's really weird to think about. Okay. So what was like the point you were making with that? Or it was just interesting to hear. Well, Cause I know I keep taking this off into really weird rabbit trails. No, I think what I was going to bring up about C.S. Lewis was something different, which is uh, so the book that we're reading, it's actually my professor wrote the book and it is about not just C.S. Lewis in general, but specifically his impact on America and why his, uh, I guess, footprint or fingerprint is so seen here in the Christian world. Uh, and so it's specifically his relationship with America because he, you know, grew up in England and never visited here. Yeah. And so the question is like, how did he have such an impact? That's what the book is about. The thing that I read today that kind of struck me was that one hypothesis is that his appeal, part of his appeal specifically in America could have been that he was an amateur. And by that meaning he wasn't a clergyman. And so, mm. you know, his reputation, his education and being a tutor at Oxford and all of these things, like it was enough for people to know like, Oh, this is an intellectual guy. He knows what he's talking about. He's been educated. Also, when you read his works, you're like, oh, this guy can put words together in a very profound way. He he knows what he's talking about. But the fact that his title wasn't, you know, pastor or bishop or whatever, C.S. Lewis, he was just a guy, a writer writing about things that he believed in and things he was passionate about. That may have, ironically, actually given him more authority in the eyes of America, which if you think about it is like a super American attitude. Oh yeah. 
an expert outsider, you know? He's not just another clergyman. The outside insider. That that does seem exactly like something America would be interested in. That's interesting. Yeah. How popular is C.S. Lewis in England? He is, I mean, you know, I've never been there, so I'm sort of piecing it together based on what I know. I think that over there, they're already less religious. And so even if he has a bunch of name recognition over there, he's maybe a little bit closer to a little bit less close to people's heart in the sense of, you know, it's just not a super Christian country. Whereas here, you know, by comparison, at least like America does have a lot more Christian kind of cultural architecture. And so he's maybe a little bit, if not more famous here, more celebrated here. That's interesting to think. Huh. Cause I never, I never really considered that he might've had more of an impact over here than he had over there. And that's a great reasoning why. Yeah. And just the fact that he's an outsider. I don't know if he, I, I wouldn't be able to say with certainty that he had more of an impact over here, but he definitely had a huge impact over here for somebody who never stepped foot, you know. Interesting. The So what do you think that means? Like, what do I think it means? Um, hmm. Or like, what's super interesting about it? I think that... I think the idea, well, maybe I'll, I'll put it this way. So the book, it gathers and just highlights a bunch of people from all different walks of life. Some people who are well-known, some people who aren't. And the impact that, you know, reading C.S. Lewis had on them. I think with what we're talking about, the thing you hear over and over with C.S. Lewis, or really it's two things. One is everybody who met him kind of seems to say the same thing about just he was a really likable guy. He was the type of guy who you met him and you felt like you knew him for a hundred years already. But the other thing is so many people, the thing that people love about C.S. Lewis is he was an agnostic and an atheist and reluctantly converted to Christianity as this very thoughtful, rigorous, rational person. And so many people give the report of like either them being in the same place, you know, his wife was like a communist Jewish woman and she eventually mm -hmm. converted to the faith. So lots of people have that story of like, I was the same guy as C.S. Lewis and I saw myself in him. Other people have the story of, you know, I grew up as a Christian, as a kid, and all through college, I kind of doubted it. I kind of thought people who believed in a God were dumb. But because I read C.S. Lewis, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, stray from faith. And like C.S. Lewis messed with me in that sort of way. Like he he ruined my efforts to 
try to go in any other direction. And so I think that's the thing that is with, with the America connection and with the idea of him being like an amateur, I don't, that's just what I think is kind of striking is that you can just have some guy who's writing things that are important to him. And probably in nine cases out of 10, you would want to have the position or the title, but in this one case out of 10, not having it might have amplified his voice. Hmm. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah. Cause normally you're, you're used to hearing that from someone with a title or maybe even wanting someone to have that. Like as someone in his position, you'd want that title to gain that credibility, to gain more of a platform. But because he didn't have that platform and kind of because he owned his own, this is going to sound so cliche, but he owned his story. Um, but really, he just was being authentic. Like, hey, yeah, I, I'm coming from this background of being agnostic. I'm coming from this, like, this is who I am. This is, I like the way you phrase that, like, reluctantly converted. That spoke to a lot of people more than if he would have just, you know, dove in and become a pastor and start a church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of makes me think not in a not in a comparative way, but in more of like an aspirational way. Uh it kind of it makes me think of what I'm wanting to do, you know, with my life in the sense of wanting to be a writer and you know, music and all of this sort of thing. It so I feel like reading this portion of the book kind of gives people like me permission to, you know, be a Christian and talk about Christian things because they're important to you. I mean, yeah, you use the word authentic, but not feeling, uh, I don't know, locked out of that by nature of that not being your profession. And I think too, you have more using the phrase of like, you know, locked in. I think that there are certain things you can't talk about as naturally with that platform, you know? Like, I, I wonder if C.S. Lewis was a pastor um, or even like a clergyman, if there would have been certain things he he felt he couldn't share as easily because of like the social expectations put on people who you are either clergy or pastors or work at church. Um, it's possible there because like as much, as much as like, you know, we always think of, you know, pastors being an authority um, and they are, but they also are at the whim of the congregation. And I do think one thing I've always wondered too, especially over the past couple of years where we've seen so many like, huge failures in like church leadership as at the global church or maybe not huge failures. That makes it sound like everyone's failing several, very noticeable publicized failures. Like I think sometimes too, people don't always take into account the fact that like sometimes there is pressure put on, and this will tie into what I want to talk about later. Uh, there's pressure put on people in 
ministerial leadership from the congregation. Like the congregation wants them to fit a certain mold. Um, there's certain things the congregation wants them to and doesn't want them to talk about. Like you feel that social pressure and someone who's outside of that and doesn't have that expectation like a C.S. Lewis doesn't have to worry about how he's going to word things or how he's going to talk about his past in a way that's going to offend people as much as maybe someone who's leading a congregation would have to. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, well, that makes me think of a couple things. So for example, his book, the great divorce is about heaven mm-hmm. and it's like a fantasy book. It is, I mean, without summarizing the whole thing, the main character goes on a trip as you find out from hell to heaven. And it's kind of like a tourist trip. Mm. It's actually kind of funny. Like they took a, they take a tour bus there (laughs) and all the people from hell are like these crotchety, like complaining people. And it's sort of a funny premise, but it is actually like a very, uh, a book that makes you think about heaven in a new way and you read it and you're kind of inspired to awe. And in the beginning or in the like preface to the book, he kind of says like, Hey, just so you know, I'm writing a fantasy story. I'm not claiming that this is what heaven is like. You know, I'm not claiming that you get there on a bus, but this is a story to make you think about things. And I think people more or less accepted that. Whereas with what you're saying, yeah, if he was a pastor, you can put all the disclaimers in the world you want on it. But if you write a book about heaven that says, seems to say anything other than what the scriptures exactly say word for word, you know, you would be like torched for that. And to what you were saying mm-hmm. too, like maybe rightfully so, like if you're a pastor, you are there for a reason, which is to teach what the Bible says. So I'm not saying that's an unreasonable expectation, but you're totally right that there are expectations that you would put on somebody like that. Uh, But also like C.S. Lewis. And I think this one is the preface to mere Christianity or might not be the preface. It might just be in the book where he kind of starts wading into an issue. And then he's like, but you know what? I'm not a pastor, so I'm not going to weigh in on that one. And so he is, he's very like, he's seeing himself humbly. He's not seeing himself as like, yeah, Hmm. I'm the guy who can say things because I'm not a pastor. He's in least in his own mind is seeing it flipped. He's like, I can't, I can't wade into that because I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't have the authority to say. He just seemed like Hmm. a humble guy. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, all right, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't not a fan before, but it, it makes you like him more. Yeah. What is your, I was going to ask, like, what is your experience with C.S. Lewis? Like, what have you read or just what is your impression of him? Um, I read the Narnias. Uh, I read Mere Christianity. Maybe I've listened to a couple other people lecture about him. I might have read another book of his, but that's I haven't read like a lot of his greats, like Great Divorce. He wrote Screwtape Letters, right? Yeah, which is that's a good one. I haven't read that one. I haven't read that one yet. Um, So I'm probably like a novice 
in C.S. Lewis? Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of, I mean, you said Narnia and mere Christianity, which a lot of people, that's like their entry point, especially the younger you are, the more likely it is that like you grew up hearing Narnia. Yeah. But I watched all the Narnia movies, so I'm pretty much an expert. (laughs) I remember the scene where Aslan's like, ride me. Oh, yeah. Spoke to me. No, I remember. You're not going to like this one. When Prince Caspian came out, we went to see it. It was. Do you know what I'm going to say? No, it was in in my memory, at least it was like the day after Christmas or might have been like New Year's Day. It was one of those. It was near that time. Yeah, Yeah. it was one of those things where you're like, oh, yeah, I guess we could go see a movie today. But that's kind of weird. But somehow we ended up I think maybe it was a cousin's thing. Regardless, I just remember we were watching Prince Caspian and you the whole time had your phone open on full brightness, your green like envy (laughs) phone or whatever it was texting some girl. And the light was like shining in my eyes the whole time. And I was super annoyed. Oh, my gosh. I don't know who I was texting there, but I do. I have like some emotional uh, <laughs> emotional relics there. I can't I can't place the details, but I remember Prince Caspian. I remember being on my phone, being really worried about the responses I got from someone. Oh, that's weird. It might have just been me because I feel like the theater was pretty empty. But I also think that I might have said something about it and you just like <laughs> brushed it off. I, that sounds right. I think we were there with like Fred and Maria. Yeah, that sounds right. I also remember Prince Caspian not being a really great movie. Yeah, I think that that's sort of the critical reception as well. I don't think it's very but honestly. It was a hard one to make great. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's a yeah, momentum I mean, dip. Yeah, it's also the last one they made. So that kind of tells you that. Do you have anything from your class that you think? Yeah, so I think maybe. I'm trying to think if I can make it correlate or tie it at all. Off the top of my head, I can't. Um, But yeah, this week we were just learning about schizophrenia, um, which I guess like. Part of the diagnosis for schizophrenia is like, I, I mean, like, I feel like that one's pretty, a pretty pop culture one. A lot of people know it. Um, I know a big thing that a lot of younger people say nowadays is like schizo or schizo rants. When like when someone's like talking really crazy about something. <laughs> um, but schizophrenia is known for its uh, like delusions. You might think that you're like really, really great or really, really terrible. Uh, there'd be hallucinations. Um, whether that's auditory or visual or sometimes both, um, you would have um, a lot of like they call them like negative symptoms, which so hallucinations, delusions, those are positive s- symptoms. Schizophrenia adds that to the person. Um, negative symptoms are like social withdrawal or uh, your speech gets like slurred or difficult or you like have some like depressive symptoms. Um, So, you know, this week we just learned about what schizophrenia is kind of the the spectrum of schizophrenia. Um, 
you know, but I think just one thing that st- stuck out to me is so like bipolar disorder and a lot of honestly, a lot of the mental health disorders, there is a biological factor to it. Um, like there is a part of it where like your D your DNA can like predispose you to it, but it's not like a direct one-to-one we're like, well, if you have these genes, then you for sure have it. Like it, it's also influenced a lot by, uh, the person's stress, like societal factors or, uh, like family factors. Uh, one thing that's big, that's like kind of known as a trigger to it is called expressed emotions, which is the people around the individual with schizophrenia, their like reactions to it. And if those expressed emotions are negative or harmful, it can like be triggering for the person. Kind of like the picture they painted with a couple like um, examples were just like, hey, if the person with schizophrenia, maybe their speech is more difficult. It's harder for them to talk. Like they might have an awareness that like, hey, it's harder for me to talk, so I'm not going to try to talk as much to people. Or they might have like maybe they have like a hallucination um, and they see that like, oh, other people who have schizophrenia are being like kind of persecuted for this. I'm not going to talk about mine. Um, So it kind of creates this self-imposed isolation where people aren't asking for help or they're kind of portraying themselves in a better light than they are because they're trying to essentially game the system until it kind of gets to a point where it's, you know, it's they have an uncontrollable psychotic episode or something that like really is out of the ordinary. And then it creates this big, you know, backlash response, which then kind of further, you know, further toilet bowls them down. And I know I'm making it seem like schizophrenia is bad and hopeless, I say all that to say that for a large number of people who maybe as a young adult are hospitalized for schizophrenia, there's a huge finding that as they progress throughout their life, they actually um, have like, oh my gosh, I can't think of the word for it. They kind of have great quality of life. Like their schizophrenia doesn't prevent them from having success and succeeding in life and having happiness and even kind of maybe not maybe remission is not the word, but having like remission as time goes on, like those symptoms aren't as severe because, you know, maybe when they're a young adult, it just kind of hits them all at once and they have this big episode and they're hospitalized. But then as like family therapy takes place and the family learns how to like live successfully with this person as the person gets like therapy of their own as medications are like introduced. The person kind of learns through acceptance of like, Hey, yes, I have schizophrenia to separate themselves. Like I'm not a schizophrenic. Like I'm an individual with schizophrenia as they kind of separate their identity from it. Like it leads to them being able to have like a successful Life like this person was talking. I I watched a TED talk and this individual was sharing she had schizophrenia and she was like a NASA scientist. Hmm. And when she was like in her 20s, she discovered some crazy, you know. Astrological phenomena and got some huge scholarship, but she also had like 
some really bad hallucinations. She explained as like not being able to turn her nightmares off. Like there is, she talked about how like there was a clown that looked like the old Stephen King, it clown. Um, who would is just that, like show up. Is that and, while she's awake or asleep? Yeah, while she's awake. And she said she got really good at knowing when she's hallucinating. But she even said that, like, that clown for her was in the audience, which is crazy to me to think that, like, maybe not crazy isn't the right word. It, it's. It gives me a lot of empathy for these people, you know, because stuff like that would freak us out in our dreams. But we turn those off like they kind of have these waking nightmares following them around. And she says when it got the worst for her is there was this like young woman who became one of her hallucinations who just always knew the exact. It's kind of like imagine your inner critic. But if your inner critic wasn't just a thought in your head, it was like something you saw and like spoke to you and you couldn't necessarily be like, I'm not going to think about this right now. Um, and she said that during that time, she attempted suicide a couple times. Um, and then, I mean, obviously, she's kind of learned to live with it successfully. She's doing really well at her career. But I don't know. It was just, it was interesting to hear the incredible, like, load that this puts on a person. But also how much of an effect their, like, family systems and their and like kind of society has on the stressors that lead to a person developing it. Um, and how for some people too, it's just like one case, there was a lady who had like, she was working two jobs and she was in college and her parents were getting a divorce and she was, um, her friend had recently passed away and she kind of just had like a psychotic break and just like had this huge, you know, schizophrenic episode. And after that, she was fine. She graduated like her law degree, um, went on to be like a lawyer who specialized in like mental health cases. But just like that, that stress kind of brought her to that point. I think actually it was saying that like brief psychotic episodes, I think is what it's called, um, are actually on the rise in developing countries. I think they're still under like 1% of the population like who might have them, but they're still just the fact that that's like a, that's like our thing. That's developing world. Yay. We, we get this one. Um, it's just interesting to look at that way. So with, with something like that, with like a brief episode, is that. Okay. How am I asking this? So is that something coming to the surface? Is that schizophrenia coming to the surface that was always there and like latent or is that something that can develop? You can be, you know, what, 35 or whatever and come into it. Yes, um, it, it could be a lot of things. I, for some people, they can have incredibly triggering, stressful areas of life that bring out schizophrenia. Like schizophrenic symptoms. And then from that. Maybe they just like have a schizophrenic episode and then have no symptoms and then just have another schizophrenic episode and have no symptoms. It's kind of like an on and off switch. Some people, they have one and never again. Some people, they have one and then they have like 
um, symptoms that stay consistent. Maybe they have a schizophrenic episode and then they have like depression and anxiety and they have another one and have depression and anxiety and it kind of drops down to a, a certain level. And some people might have it where they have an episode and then have anxiety and have an episode and have more anxiety and have an episode and have more anxiety. Like it's an upward an upward thing. It can, it just kind of determines. And I think that's why I think for a lot of the cases we saw, and I think even our textbook recommended um, family systems therapy, like bringing the family together and kind of helping them learn how to communicate, going back to expressed emotions, helping the family to learn like how to express their emotions, their questions, their concerns, um, and how not to express like frustration and hate and like, hey, you should hide this or just get over it um, because that could get you know, be harmful for the person, but also help the person to, you know, hear from their family and speak to their family and like learning new like communication patterns. Um, Cause a lot of people with schizophrenia might stay with their family. Um, I, yeah, it, it just kind of really interesting. So, it, so it's kind of different for everyone. Um, how it, how the symptoms develop and then how they persist or stop after that. It kind of it, it kind of makes me wonder th- through history then, and maybe you know the answer to this, but I wonder if this is something that was always there, if people, if a certain number of people were always schizophrenic or had, you know, psychotic episodes, but that this the structure of society just didn't bring it to the surface as much you know the family system regulated it a little bit more and now we're just seeing it come out more or if it's truly like a new phenomenon which you were saying in developing nations that's like our calling card so maybe it is more new that's that's a good question i know um there's some reading I have to do for a journal entry that would have been really interesting that I've done for this. Um, but the author talks about the difference between uh, schizophrenia and like demon possession. I was going to ask those about things that. kind of play. It. Yeah. Um, and I think based on the questions I have to do for the reading that I haven't done yet, I think the author kind of draws a distinction between those two. And some of the reasons that that kind of try, I'm sorry, I'm trying to recall some of the reasons that that distinction gets played out is like the author would say that people with schizophrenia can be very interested in religion, whereas people with demonic in like demonic uh, possession like aren't uh, people with schizophrenia. They often have like difficult speech, like they have what's it called uh drifting speech. Where like, let's say you're in counseling for schizophrenia, you ask the client like, hey, how have your hallucinations been this week or something like that? Hey, how has work been? And they might say, oh, they didn't give me what I need for work. I tried to, but the pills, then my socks are going crazy and the like their their thoughts drift very quickly off topic, whereas someone who like a demoniac like they wouldn't have that difficulty speaking. Um, so there's there's distinctions that this person would draw. Um, 
that being said too, I think one thing in the mental health field is like whenever you're looking at diagnosing someone, it's also important. And I wonder how that plays into schizophrenia. I'm trying to recall if I heard anything about it, but like part of your diagnosis too, is that like the person's responses, like what the person's doing isn't just a response to stressful events in that person's life. That might be more for like major depression or like, uh, even for like bipolar disorder, uh, maybe for like anxiety disorder that like those disorders, we shouldn't diagnose them when the person is just going through an incredibly stressful period of life. But it almost seems that like psychotic episodes are caused when people have so not always, this isn't, this isn't like a rule of thumb, but it seems like for a lot of people, like stressful events in life almost cause like give them so much weight that their brain essentially, I guess just over like kind of gets flooded by that stress and causes the person to react in like uncharacteristic ways. Hmm. Which then bring, which then brings up a really weird, like one of my writings this week, which I, I honestly really even like hesitate to share because of how I, how differently I could see people's opinions being about it was like, the guy who tried to assassinate uh, President Ronald Reagan pleaded insanity for because he was a schizophrenic um, and the he pleaded like he, he asked for an insanity plea and he got it like so he didn't receive like mm. full punishment for that. And the question was essentially like, how do we how do we walk through this intersection of like mental health and the justice system? when like some people going through like a schizophrenic episode might not have that, that control, you know, it's not, it's not the same as someone making the choice to drink and drive. Like sure. Alcohol put them in that state where they couldn't drive effectively, but they chose, you know, the alcohol, like you don't, you don't choose excess stress on your life to the point where it causes you to lose control of yourself. It was it was interesting. And I don't know if I necessarily want to weigh in. I'll just let you as the listener think about that for yourself. What decisions you would draw and, and why? Yeah, because that's like a fascinating question. But, you know, the precedent that that sets. But I don't even know where I would begin on that. Like in in certain cases, it is a little it, it seems to me more cut and dry that somebody can plead insanity and sometimes that makes sense, but that yeah, with, with trying to assassinate a president, that's like a extreme case that kind of tests the, the precedent. Um, and it so, brings me back ironically to one of my favorite musicals. Josiah takes the white house, the musical <laughs> or Josiah runs for president, the musical, that's which was a, it was going to be, Huh? That's not what I thought. I was trying to guess which musical. I was like, Phantom <laughs> of the Opera? Is it Beauty and the Beast? Nope. Um, so for those of you who aren't aware, uh, I, me and my girlfriend were driving down to a cheese festival and saw a billboard for Josiah Takes the White House, the musical, in which an Amish man was leading his horse and buggy towards 
the, the White House. Uh, and we were just enraptured with imagining what this musical was going to be like. We we wrote it as like a three-act musical. The first act was like introducing Josiah and his family. The second act was like the country growing, but the presidential family going through turmoil and trying to wrestle with like, who are we? What are our beliefs? Like, what does this mean? And the third act being like a resolution to both. The actual musical was not as exciting, but in the very first scene, they you've got these two characters, the one running for president and his campaign manager, and they're like responding to tweets on social media. And the first thing they introduce from these tweets is essentially somebody having like a psychotic rant and it's played off as just like, a, oh, like people post some weird stuff online but I was thinking about it and it, maybe we're not the audience for that, you know, for that scene because like <laughs> she like is a counselor and I'm going to school. So like I think for both of us, we were like, well, that's kind of icky. Um, and spoiler, please, please skip ahead 30 seconds. If you don't want Josiah uh, runs for president, the musical spoilers. But that same text gets introduced several times throughout the play and then is introduced before that person assassinates President Josiah. Um, And it's just really interesting because, like, I feel like a lot of people going through psychotic episodes, like sometimes some of the famous cases we see are because these people end up harming others in significant ways But I think one thing I kind of touched on in my paper is like if that person, though, was to take their own life during a psychotic episode, I feel like there'd be more empathy that the illness took that life from the person. Like we'd say like, well, that person like had a death by suicide. If they commit suicide, like through that, that mental illness kind of took their life. But when that person takes another life, it becomes a very interesting thing to try to parse out how that person receives crime. I know in, in my textbook, one of the first like cases we're introduced to is someone who, you know, is going on a psychotic, like psychotic, uh, episode and is convinced that like, there's all these terrible, miserable things that are going to enter into the world and it's going to happen because of this one person. And then he goes and like shoots, I think his Senator. Um, and the lawyers for the case, like, or at least the justice system for the case, like didn't even see that guy fit to stand and plead guilty until he had received mental health treatment to bring him to a more reasonable state of mind. Like even like after the crime, it wasn't like he was still like kind of in the psychotic fugue. Psychotic fugue doesn't sound right. A schizophrenic fugue. Um, And had to be like given therapy so that he could stand on trial. Like it's, I don't know. it, It, it gets really interesting. And it does make me think, too, like in places of history, like where has that been, you know, a thing not to go back to what you said before of like, uh, what's it called? Psycho history or something mm-hmm. like we don't want to start saying like, well, this famous person, this famous person, I bet this person from the Bible, because it might I don't know, 
like we're just now starting to diagnose it you know over the past like 50 years so i'd hate to go back farther than that and try to give it to people um but it's also weird that like if we only start diagnosing this 50 years ago like how old is schizophrenia or is it a thing caused by more modern stresses i don't know well yeah so there obviously is more i think it's obvious more stress and more stimulation that people can be exposed to today oh you know like if if i can hop in real quick that that's one really interesting thing about schizophrenia is a lot of times from a biological standpoint people with schizophrenia have too much dopamine in their head Mm. like whereas um you might look at like depressive disorders or anxious disorders or stuff like that as being a lack of dopamine people with schizophrenia almost have uh an overflow of dopamine that kind of causes these hallucinations or delusions or this like kind of wacky state of mind um, because of the amount of dopamine in their mind. Yeah. So going to what you're saying examples, about stimulation too. Like I was thinking like, man, is me playing video games like going to cause me to go crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Like living in the city or, you know, the internet or even just, you know, today we have fewer boundaries and more opportunities mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, if it used to be if you're growing up and you're, you know, your dad was a blacksmith and his dad was a blacksmith, you've, you're pretty much going to be a blacksmith and maybe one or two other opportunities would present themselves for you to consider. But now it's just like the gates are wide open in career, but with everything, you know, there's so many options. And so that is, I mean, I know for me, that is, was something you kind of have to like figure out how to process all that information. So it doesn't seem far fetched to me that we're seeing, you know, more that schizophrenia could be in my completely uninformed opinion could be a newer development, or at least the amount of it that we see could be new. But also I think that there's, there's probably something to the idea that in the past or past examples of it have probably been lumped in with different things, either like demon possession or, uh, you know, maybe, okay. Okay. So this is actually maybe taking a rabbit trail, but when you're talking about Josiah takes the white house, uh, it reminds me of a certain episode of house of cards, which you never watched. Did you No. Okay. So, uh, I like, it almost makes me wonder if Josiah takes the white house. If, if they saw this, if there was any inspiration there, but so, and I'm going to get, you're telling me it's not original. You're telling me the storyline is not original. (laughs) I mean, I didn't see it, so I'm not going to throw any stones, but so in house of cards and this is a spoiler alert, uh, Frank Underwood, he becomes the president in the process of doing so he's working under the table with this journalist Zoe and they've got like this relationship that is hidden and 
one of the only people that knows about it is this other journalist. And I, I kind of forget his name. Um, but once Frank becomes president, he kills Zoe at a certain point. And the other journalist is like, he knows he doesn't know he can't prove it, but he is like, Oh yeah, he definitely killed her. And so he's totally becomes that character with like all the pins and the red yarn. And he is going crazy because he's like, our president killed my friend. And then he, this is the connection to Josiah takes the white house. He goes and does an assassination attempt, but that mm. all gets like covered up as, yo, he's just crazy. You know, this is just another product of our society or something. I don't know. He snapped and that's why he's saying all this wild stuff. And everyone's like, Oh yeah, he's just crazy. Like our president is the murderer. And so, yeah, it, it's like, you probably get it in both directions where, People in history have been schizophrenic and there hasn't been language or there hasn't been a way of like knowing what that means. And so it gets misunderstood or you probably have stuff in the opposite direction where, you know, people are getting called schizophrenic, but maybe it's something else or like Newton, you know, people are calling it one thing, but maybe it was another and just confusing. And so, yeah, back to the psycho history thing. That's the that's my problem with applying it to past figures it's it's like what is the win here yeah because it would seem yes. like what you want to do with learning more about these disorders like you want to help people moving into the future and it doesn't seem i really don't know what positive can come out of looking at past figures and like speculating as to whether or not they might've displayed some of these things. It seems like it would be more helpful to learn as much as you can about it now so that you can apply it to people who are alive now and who are, are moving forward. Then just like speculate about it. Yeah. Like we want to, we want to move forward more than we want to move back. Um, Cause sure. You could say like, well, Hey, person who has this, this, we speculate this person had this, like that could be helpful. But like, I don't know, if we do more work on it now, we could have more modern examples of recovery than having to rely on like past ones. Um, have you hmm. guys learned, have you guys studied PTSD or will you be in that class? Well, that's not really, is it an addictions class you're in right now? No, this is a, a diagnosis class. I think PTSD was one of our first couple weeks um okay it was under anxiety disorders i think is when we learned about it because uh last time we were talking about catch 22 which is mm. a world war ii book and so then this week we gave like a presentation on it anyway the girl in my group was talking about ptsd and something she said i just thought this was interesting was that when you have ptsd your episodes or whatever they would be called actually heighten and they exaggerate the trauma you went through. So in other words, not only are you going through again, going through it again, but you're going through an exaggerated version of it, which mm -hmm. is just super messed up. Like mm -hmm. when I heard that, man, it's kind of crazy, but I, I was going to ask if, you're going to be studying it if 
to keep your ear out for that. Or if you already have studied it, I don't know if you heard anything like that or not. I remember us studying it. I don't remember anything like that. Um, I mean, once again, we're not going into like crazy. I gotta stop using the word crazy. Um, but we uh, we didn't go into like into in depth detail about it. Um, but I do remember learning a little bit about it, and I remember too. Yeah. Like, I don't know if I learned this from my classes or just heard it too. But like, I wonder too. And this kind of ties, I guess, into schizophrenia a little bit. What like society's reception to individuals with mental health image, mental health uh, disorders, like how that affects the individual? Well, I, I guess I'm asking it like a question. Let me be flat out. Uh, for people with schizophrenia, like societal pressures and family pressures can negatively or positively impact the person. And I wonder for like PTSD. Like when you look at the veterans coming back from like World War II, like, yes, shell shock was a thing, um, which is kind of what they called PTSD. They thought it was caused by the reverberations from like shells going off around you. Right. It just rattled the brain. But also like that was a war that was kind of celebrated. Whereas when you look at people from like the Vietnam War, um, we see a lot more cases of. PTSD from those wars. And I wonder, is it because those wars were more horrific or is it because like as a society coming home from those wars, there wasn't that societal welcome Hmm. and like, um, I guess celebration of those soldiers, like the, the war itself and by proxy, the soldiers were kind of like questioned as to like, how ethical it was. So if like, if you're doing what you're doing for war, which is already heavy and potentially traumatic, and then other people are questioning, I mean, shoot, it hits me heavy when people question things that I do. I can't imagine doing something that heavy and then not Not having having like the structure to, to process it or make meaning of it. Exactly. Because then if if society doesn't like what you did, you're less likely to talk about it. Like you're more likely to try to keep it bottled up, which is only going to further bring about like like you said, like those heightened responses. Now, PTSD, when you're having these flashbacks, it's not like you've had the ability to process. This is all hypothetical. I'm not quoting a book. This is just what I'm imagining. Um, But because you're not able to process those traumatic experiences when you do have something trigger your symptoms, like you said, it's not, it's not a mild trigger because you've been talking about it and processing it. It is a trigger that takes you to that state and even more exaggerated because you're not learning how to cope with it because you're kind of just like trying to separate out that part of your yourself. I don't know if I'm making sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's what she was saying too. And, you know, this is like just a undergrad, you know, focus for a book project. So who knows if we know what we're talking about, but she was saying that it literally in the brain, the trauma gets separated and like pocketed into a completely separate, I I don't know, part of the brain, how, how you would, I don't, 
I don't know exactly how you would like quantify it, but, and that's, that's why it feels exaggerated is because when you get pushed over into that other spot, it's not integrated with the rest of your life and experience and worldview. It's, it's its own thing. And so when you get over in there, my understanding of it is you're kind of just like a pinball, you know, bouncing all around the walls. Yeah, it's probably really closely tied to, I think the hippocampus is the part of the brain that is more like survival, fight or flight. Uh, let me see if I can flip to a quick picture of my book. Nope, I'm not finding it. I'm sorry if I'm wrong. It could be the amygdala. Hold on, I'm seeing pictures. I actually do want to say hippocampus based on her presentation, but I might be remembering it completely wrong. Nope, I'm not seeing the pictures. But like the the part of our brain, like the the central foundation that some people said, like the rest of the brain involved of off of was that kind of survival fight or flight instance for a lot of like uh panic attack or panic disorders. Um, that's the part of the brain that's triggered, which is why these like panic attack disorders can be so specific. Like it's specific things that cause them. Um, because you're essentially entering into fight or flight around a certain situation. And I think I'm going to imagine that PTSD would be tied into that. Um, but that trauma and being separated when it does trigger, it probably has this super heightened fight or flight trauma response um which like you said if you're not learning how to cope with that it's going to come out more and more exaggerated you know every time it happens until you learn how to kind of like prepare for it and cope with it and ah i'm not i know for a normal panic attack disorder um part of therapy after a while this isn't like onset of therapy as time goes on like gradual immersion therapy is part of the recovery process. Um, like you kind of like essentially put the person into that panic attack state so that they can learn like that they're what their perceived negative consequences of that panic attack, that it's not going to happen the way they think it's going to happen. And that gradually lessens the symptoms to the point where the person is able to live without them. I don't know if that's how you treat PTSD. Um, I wouldn't recommend anyone listening to this to say, well, you know what? I, I heard in a podcast person with PTSD that this is what you need to do. No, don't do that. It might cause potentially a lot of harm. But I could see that being a thing where if you're not talking about it and being open with it and getting care and being able to process it and maybe even having a professional, not just some guy on a podcast to walk you through like learning to deal with that. Like it's yeah, it's not going to like taper off. It's probably only going to get more and more severe as time goes on, which is, it's just sad. Yeah. Yeah. It is sad. And and I I didn't mean to, you know, I kind of threw us on a different subject that, you aren't prepared for. So I, I don't think anybody is, you know, expecting you to completely know oh, it no, all. It's fine. But the stakes it's a good are challenge. a little the higher other day for I was, you. 
the other day I was like super worried. Like, am I remembering anything from this class? So it's it's a good, it's a good encouragement that I guess I'm remembering something. It's a good pop quiz. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Put you on your toes. So I just want to ask one more thing super quick because we kind of brushed by it. So there is a distinction made, like people recognize a distinction between, you know, schizophrenia and demoniacs, you said. Mm -hmm. That's a thing. Well, that's in my upcoming reading, so I can't speak to it. But the discussion questions, it was like, answer one of these questions. And one of the questions was like, the author says that there's a difference between schizophrenia and demoniacs and like speak to how they define differences between those two in one of these six categories. And then like one of the categories was like speech, like demoniacs normally don't have difficulty speaking, whereas someone with a schizophrenic episode has that like disorganized speech pattern, uh, interest in religion. Demoniacs usually aren't interested in religion, whereas people with schizophrenia are. There was like four more categories that I didn't look into big detail of, or I didn't like kind of read through in great detail, um, but would have been super interesting. So maybe we can touch on that, (laughs) touch on that later after I learn about it. Yeah. Yeah. We can tease that one out. That is an interesting question. As soon as I started this class, that was one of the things I thought about was like, I wonder how that works. That's some of the stuff you get at a Christian university that in a good way you wouldn't get anywhere else. You know, like you if you brought up somewhere else demon possession, you know, there's a good chance you just get kind of like laughed out of the room or it's one of those things that everyone kind of knows like eh, we don't we don't really talk about that. Yeah. It's interesting too. like I know in our society, one thing I kind of talked about was like in the Western society, uh, these symptoms are normally seen as more like biological symptoms. But if you look at like India or if you look at other countries, they're seen as more like spiritual issues. And normally um, they don't go to like medicine as or medication as like a – way of like doing recovery but like at the same time like people are getting the help they need so i don't know like for us medication's helpful and i think medication would obviously be helpful for everyone at the same time too it's you know schizophrenia isn't just treated by medication like if we just give people medication like that might help with their symptoms immediately but also they're going to need that like cognitive behavioral therapy that family systems therapy that societal they need to find like a place in society that's not going to cause them to feel like further isolated so it's i guess you could cause you could in some societies call that spiritual issues like a place of belonging um, family health those things are like a big part of a lot of spiritual belief systems so you know, it's not that just because we know more about the brain, we've like gotten rid of the need for spirituality. Like spirituality can still be a very need and an effective part in helping people with mental health issues. Yeah. Or yeah, building or resiliency more... in people so that they don't have mental health issues. Right. 
we are much more disintegrated in our lives. And so I'm not claiming to know anything about the East, but yeah, I think if you have more of a focus on religion and spirituality, and even like you were saying, certain family structures, you know, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that with India, there's like some not so good stuff with the structure, the class structure and stuff as well. So there's that, but also, yes, what you're saying, it also kind of integrates different parts of your life and your mind that are important and that touch every other area. Hmm. Yeah. I think, I think that was my big takeaway is it's just interesting how, I guess going off what you said, how growing up in like a Western society, I tend to think of it. And even honestly, sometimes from like a church perspective, like, you know, I have my spirit, I have my soul and I have my body. Like I am a spirit. I have a soul. I live in a body. I had to treat those three things separately. But I even wonder if that's like the heart of the Christian message when it comes to like being a whole individual. Cause like to, if we, compartmentalize it too much like well i have this thing i should take the right medication or i have this you know situation over here but that doesn't affect me at work like it's all so blended together um the more i learn about like some of these issues the more i'm like it's not just that you solve this one part of it and everything else clicks into place it's like it's there's a there's a web that kind of creates these things and you need to address the web like that's kind of what therapy is, is like helping people address the web of things that bleed into this one manifesting issue um, more than it is like just trying to put like a bandaid on something. And it's just kind of interesting seeing that. I don't know. It's just a good encouragement going into the field of like, I don't just want to treat people like they're a bandaid. Um, and I want to be you know careful too, not to pass by people too quickly. And, you know, I want to create a world where people even before they have like a mental health breakdown, feel like, you know, maybe I'm diminishing their stress or something like that to the point where they don't have it as quick or hopefully at all. Address the web. That's your, uh, that's your, can be the name of your practice or your online course address the web honestly it would be i've I've thought too about like what i want to do like obviously i want to go to school and be a counselor but even like i thought like teaching could be fun too it feels weird to think about teaching counseling before you like do are a counselor yeah yeah so i'm not trying to get too far into it but i don't know it could be interesting it's one of those things trying to parse out where exactly is this ship sailing (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, for the record, for everybody listening, I'm 100% joking about an online course. Don't do that. <laughs> no, no, no. Keep your eyes peeled on the, on the sub stack. It's coming soon. Well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, never say never. You know what? I'm actually liking this idea more. <laughs> I'll, I'll type it out next semester. I can't say what the accreditation will be, but it will be there. Isn't that that's weird to think, though? That's all it takes to have an online course. I could teach an online course and totally be teaching malarkey. 
and people would probably take it and it probably wouldn't get as much questioning as it should. Yeah. No, I heard stat. This is totally off the rails of what we're talking about. Maybe we'll wrap the episode soon, but I heard stats of, uh, so we already knew that if something appears in writing, it is, gosh, I don't know, 20% more believable or it's it's considered to have 20% more authority. I don't know what it is. We, we kind of knew that. But then more recently, probably like a year ago, there were there was more research done. And when something appears on video, it's even more trustworthy to the brain. So literally you set up a camera and you know, who are we to talk? Like we're doing this right now, but we're at least like, I think pretty upfront about what we're like. We're talking about stuff we learned this week, but yeah, if you just set up a video or set up a camera, rather post a video just in people's brains, it comes off as being more trustworthy. Oh yeah. Well, and I know I showed you these before, too, but there's some of my favorite YouTube videos to go back and watch. Um, There's this guy. None of you aunts and uncles listening to this do not look this up, but there's this guy called the Internet Historian, and he Hmm. did this piece on in Internet history, how 4chan every time an iPhone came out, released a fake campaign for features that that iPhone had that it didn't and that actually would break the iPhone. And the amount of people that believed them was insane because they just made it look believable. Like I think for one, it was like the iPhone itself, like the case was cheap. So it bended a little bit and they would, they just released a whole campaign of like, Hey, the iPhone seven with a bendable case, bend it to any shape you want. It might not bend easy, but it will bend. Go ahead. Bend it real hard. Or like the iPhone 5, now with a new rechargeable microwave battery. It uses microwave yeah. energy. And and the new iPhone 6, now with a waterproof case. Go ahead. Drop it in the fountain. And when I sometimes when I see like ads for Masterclass and stuff, part of me is like, I really want to get a masterclass subscription and just learn some of these things. But then other other parts of me is like, but who else is on this platform where I'm just going to watch a course and be like, I'm sorry. Like, what are your credentials? Yeah. I don't even masterclass. I don't mind masterclass in theory. I've never used it, but for me, it's when it's somebody is like, you know, doing their online course about how to make money doing online courses Oh That's where gosh, you just get yes. lost in in the sauce. I've got five secrets. Was it Jake Paul's like, hey, I'll teach you for a thousand dollars how to be successful on the Internet. And you take the course. I've, I've watched YouTubers who have paid for this course and taken it. And it's like it's not even good videos. Like the quality right. of the videos is bad. And it's yeah. just like him in front of a white erase board saying like post. A lot of those people make it just because they have like delusional self-belief and they just, they can make something out of nothing. And I'm saying that with all the respect in the world, like they're just magnetic people, but then they get confused about like that. it They don't see that in themselves. They see like, yeah, what you're saying, 
it's these five tips that if anybody does, they'll succeed. And it's like, oh, that is not. That's my more charitable interpretation of how they can give such bad advice. There's also the likely possibility that, you know, they're just grifting. That is an interesting way of looking at, too, though, is that like sometimes for these individuals, it is just like. No, it's not five tips that anyone could pull it off. Like not everyone can be Logan and Jake Paul. Like only Logan and Jake Paul could be Logan and Jake Paul. And you could give me all the tips in the world and I couldn't do it. And that is the episode. Thanks again for listening. Hope you guys enjoyed it. We'll see you guys on the next one.